Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander. I'm Ravi Gupta. And this is Majority 54, the podcast for meaningful conversations that change minds, change votes, and win elections. Uh, we are fortunate to be uh, graced by grace. Uh, God, that's terrible. What a dad Yeah, joke. that's bad. I'm so uh, sorry. Yeah. And you're going to totally leave it in, I bet. Yeah, All right, I so, am. Uh, <laughs> our producer, Grace Lynch, is joining us on air again uh, by popular demand. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. And uh, Ravi, before we get into... Uh, what I would call where in the world uh, is Ravi Gupta. I will tell you <laughs> that um, just before coming upstairs here to do this, I was talking to my cousin Sam, who's staying with us this week. You know my cousin Sam. Sam said to me, he said, man, I'm this close to unfollowing Ravi on Instagram. And I was, <laughs> I was like, why? And he goes, because he uh, is living such a childless life. And yeah. Sam has two kids. And he's I like, become and the I, mascot for that. Yeah. Yeah. And he's like, and it's like, I'm happy for him. But sometimes it just it just pisses me off. And oh yeah, I, it, <laughs> it, it's already made its way down here. You know, I've become a hero to the childless and an enemy of all all people with children. And and this this guy I play tennis with, he's like this amazing tennis player here. And he watched one of my videos where I defended unmarried people and said we essentially get screwed by the tax code. And he, not even an American who doesn't understand the American tax code sat me down and explained how expensive it is to raise a child in Costa Rica. So it's followed me all the way here. Uh, I have enemies. I have enemies everywhere, Jason. Hero of the childless is not a great title. Yeah. Hero, hero of the childless, enemy of all people with children. All right. Shall we jump into the news of the week? Yes. Well, obviously, the huge news this week is that Russia is making incursions into Ukraine. Uh, Putin made a speech, a very long speech earlier this week in which he said a whole bunch of things. Most importantly, he essentially called Ukraine a phony country and said that he recognizes the territorial integrity of two sections of the Ukraine that are controlled by Russian-backed separatists. And he has now sent, quote, peacekeepers into those areas. And what was notable about his speech is that he basically said that the country is a fiction. And so this seems to be a big deal. It seems to be one step uh, in a larger escalation of conflict and uh, basically a land grab. And the U.S. Uh, and allies responded with a series of targeted sanctions, including uh, denying Russia's ability to borrow money in Western markets, blocking financial transactions by two banks and the families of three Russian elite families feels like kind of a small series of steps. The U.S. and allies argue that it's kind of targeted and that they're, they'll ramp it up as Russia escalates the conflict. But what does this all mean? As far as whether or not it's uh, like a minor start, I do think one thing that is notable is that they are 
out and out saying we are going to go after the family members of people close to Putin and like in his inner circle, which is a big deal because they're they're saying, look, we know you you hide your wealth through your family members. So they're kind of like breaking that fourth wall of the way it usually works and saying, like, we're not, we're not going to just pretend we're doing sanctions. Like, we're going to make sure it hurts the people close to you, which is pretty, I guess, basic political pressure. Um, I think what it means is it's really scary. And I can get into some of that in a second. But Grace, you go ahead. I think that a positive part of this is definitely that NATO is acting together and collaboratively. After Donald Trump's presidency, NATO was pretty much in shambles and there wasn't a lot of cohesion there. So I think that Biden could be taking a better victory lap there in terms of kind of reuniting this coalition and making sure that it does act in unison. So I think that there is a positive way to look at that. And in terms of what this means for the Ukrainian people, I think that that is where the scary part lies. And I also think that we could do a better job of hammering home what will be the resulting humanitarian crisis from this incursion, to put it lightly. And so I feel that from where I'm sitting, I'm interested to see how things develop. But I think that the Biden administration and Democrats more broadly could be doing a better job of messaging how this is a worthwhile fight for us to put up and how, you know, succumbing or appeasing Putin at this point in time is probably not the best course of action. For me personally, like I peel it back to like, there's some 19 year old kid who's like in the Russian army, who's like getting ready to be a quote unquote peacekeeper, which is say make an incursion into Ukraine. And then there's like a 19 year old Ukrainian kid on the other side. And neither of them give a, a shit about this. Like they, they both would like to be playing video games and, you know, they're thinking about like maybe a girl they were dating at home or whatever, like, and, and their buddies who they're with and probably they're really cold by the way. And like one or both of them might die because Putin is an asshole. Like, I mean, it's, it should just like, that shouldn't be lost. Like I just think it's, we think of this as geopolitics and all that, but like it's a war over just some really dumb egomaniacal, uh, you know, nostalgia about the Soviet Union and about, and I get it. Like I get that Putin is, you know, considers the possibility of Ukraine joining NATO to be like a, an existential threat because NATO was created to, to deter the original Soviet Union and essentially Russia. I get all that. That's not a legitimate reason for war at all. But like at the end of the day, it, what, what I just think about is like, there's just 19 year old kids who will be sacrificed by games played by men who no longer have to serve in that capacity. Yeah, when we talk about this coalition, it includes more than NATO, which is reassuring. So Taiwan, Japan, Singapore all announced that they're not going to, they're going to be limiting technology exports to Russia. You know, Germany, who's obviously part of NATO, also announced that they're going to be uh, putting the Nord Stream pipeline on hold, which is this really important strategic pipeline, very controversial, uh, connecting Germany and Russia. And this is all good, but I, I'm left wondering, like, why, especially when you talk about U.S. sanctions, why is there even that much left on the table? This is a country that uh, blatantly tried to manipulate our elections and has done such horrible things domestically here. Like, like why, why is there even sanctions left to do here? And I also wonder, like, on the sanctions front, is this almost like a medic who just prescribes... Uh, you know, um, some kind of painkiller over and over and over again to the point where it's meaningless uh, or like an antibiotic or something that's overprescribed. Like, like, are sanctions really making a difference? If they would, Russia knew these were coming. They didn't, it didn't stop them before. 
So like this whole idea that we're going to be escalating sanctions over time, I'm just like, why are there even sanctions left to give? Like we should be going to the most extreme extent immediately. We should have probably done it um, after they tried to steal our election. Yeah, I think that the I think the questions over what's the point of sanctions or what could this possibly be offering or it doesn't feel like a significant amount of a response is largely due to the fact that we don't really understand what that means. And I don't think that it's been very clearly articulated. I think Germany's steps are really concrete. And we've been able to point to that as this like major disruption in trade between the two nations. But otherwise, I think that it's kind of left in this opaque category of sanctions, which is quite vague and I don't think very persuasive. So I think for this to be an opportunity for the U.S. and other NATO countries to like really rally around a cause and defend international law and the lives of innocent people, we need to have more clarity on what those steps are, because I do think that they are likely quite meaningful. And yet I agree with you that it seems insufficient and unclear at this point. So two things that I think should be kept in mind here. One is just really both of them have to do with domestic politics to some degree, which is as nonsensical as this uh, incursion, this invasion uh, really appears to be to us. And it is like, it's important to keep in mind that the rest of the world really struggles to grant us any moral authority on it because of the war in Iraq. And, and, and it's like, for some reason, kind of absent from our debate here. When we, we just talk about this as objectively what Putin is doing is wrong, and it is objectively, and we take for granted the idea that the rest of the world sees our complaints about that, at fa- you know, takes them at face value. And what we don't really think about is they're like, you invaded a country that didn't attack you, and it like wasn't that long ago. Halfway um, around the world that you have no right. historical tie to. Exactly. You know who is not lost on is Putin, who mentions it all the time. And in his speech earlier this week, he talked. He he said that he's worried about Ukraine developing a nuclear weapon. He actually used the phrase, he said nuclear weapons and then said weapons of mass destruction. They're throwing it back in our face. It's absolutely. And like we, I'm not saying like therefore it in no way justifies what Putin is doing, but we should recognize that there are long-term second and third order effects of doing something really stupid in foreign policy and we should avoid doing it. The other area that I kind of wanted to talk about with this is, is the domestic political piece, which is, you know, all of a sudden I'm seeing all these memes going around. Uh, about the 2012 uh, presidential debates when Romney was talking about, you know, Russia being uh, our greatest adversary and Obama was being kind of snarky about it and was saying like, hey, yeah, Romney was know. right about that, I think. Yeah. 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 And, and, and so like on the first point about Iraq, like we have to recognize when we as a country got some shit wrong. That was a Republican administration that got it way, way wrong, invaded the wrong country. We should also recognize when we were too snarky about something and when like when the left was wrong about something. Now, it is, I will say, important to remember the context, right? Like this was 2012. You know, ISIS was becoming a huge threat. We had all sorts of other stuff going on. So in that context, when Obama was saying, look, Russia is not our greatest threat, it's ISIS, that wasn't inaccurate. But what was incorrect was to not forecast was to not foresee that Russia was a rising international adversary. My problem with it is I'm seeing these memes and it's like, wait a minute, you want to argue that Romney was right, therefore Republicans were right about Russia and Democrats were wrong, but then you want to completely ignore the intervening period where Democrats were like, wait a minute, Russia is trying to destroy our democracy and infiltrate it and hijack it and sabotage it. 
And you, to this day, are like, that shit never happened. Yeah, well, it, also, the fact that, you know, the, the greatest threat, threat to Russia is NATO, and Trump, you know, was openly hostile to NATO. He basically blackmailed, tried to blackmail the, the president of Ukraine for his own um, political gain. Uh, but, you know, another dose of domestic politics here is Trump gave an interview this week where he said, predictably, that this would not happen under his watch. And he also predicted, and this could be true, and a lot of experts think this could be true, that Taiwan is next and there's some kind of coordination between Russia and China, which you'd think is smart because they know that if we're not going to intervene in Ukraine, we're probably not going to intervene in Taiwan either. And so they're kind of acting in concert. I guess my question for you two is, as this continues and the conflict intensifies, what are you looking for from either Biden or Democrats? What to you is missing from the U.S. side of this? I feel like domestically, I'd like to see a more clear articulation of why Americans should care. Because I think they should. And I know why I do. Um, but I'd like to see a more clear articulation of why this endangers the world, why it matters, not even for political reasons, just because like, I think we'll do better when more when we're more engaged with the rest of the world and we understand why we should be. Yeah. And I would love to see a narrative that connects overall across the world. The Economist came out with a report two weeks ago that basically every year they track uh, democracy around the world. And it's at an all time low since they've started tracking it. And interestingly, Eastern Europe was the one area that didn't backtrack uh, this most recent time. So obviously next year we'll probably have some issues. But what I would love to see is a, an articulation of what connects uh, authoritarian, anti-democratic behavior here and abroad and why this is, this is a global struggle. Like, like we should care about Ukraine because in many ways, like a lot of the same forces whether, are either explicitly or implicitly coordinating. There's a reason why Trump, Putin, and a lot of these um, autocrats uh, Bolsonaro, Modi, right? They, they all uh, are friendlier than they should be. They all kind of speak the same language. They all use the same populist playbook. They all treat political and, and ethnic minorities in their country as punching bags. And this, this is a playbook that goes on all around the country. And they all do the same thing, which is they, they accuse their enemies or their opponents of doing the very things they're doing. So, you know, uh, you know Putin, when he's in, you know, sending in peacekeepers, it's, he's accusing Ukraine of hostility against him. And then he's going to, it, just like, uh, we'll, as we'll talk about in Wisconsin, um, they're accusing us of stealing the election, right? Like, we're the ones stealing the election while they're stealing the election. So they all use the same playbooks. I mean, these are all, it's all the same fight. That's why. That, I want to hear that uh, because, it's, because it's true. I, I think it's a really good point, Ravi, that we... I get really frustrated at how Americans don't seem to care about what happens beyond our borders, even when it affects Americans. But I also never really think about the fact that Americans, for the most part, don't realize that the fight that we're having in this country over whether to continue to be a democracy is not unique to us. We assume that every single thing that mm -hmm. we're debating is always unique to us, but it would be really helpful uh, if we talked more often about and we clued more people in on the fact that 
this is an international debate that's happening and there's a side that has to be taken. So it's not just a matter of like, are you going to side with Ukraine or are you going to side with Russia? It's, it's look, there are people who want authoritarianism in this world and there are people who want democracy in this world. And, and we have to decide which side we're on here in America and throughout the world. So yes, we, th we think voting rights in America and democracy in America is important. And also our foreign policy reflects that. It is seamless. It is, we are trying, we are fighting it here. We are fighting it all across the world. That is a very simple and very true message that we probably ought to lean into more. And you think about the swing voter, right? Yeah, like I'm not sure I can convince somebody to care about India, for example, too much. But I think by and large, people want the world to be in a relatively stable place. Now, India is backtracking significantly over the past decade. Now, we're not going to invade India to make it more democratic, Right. But what we could do is they're facing a choice between do we want to go more like China or do we want to go more like America? And right now we're not selling ourselves really well. Now, what can we do to fix that? We can fight for democracy here. That doesn't involve a single troop. Right. It doesn't involve us sending money to anybody. It doesn't involve us telling anybody what to do. It doesn't even involve us lecturing anybody like we don't need to be neoconservatives. We just need to provide a better example here. So if I'm talking to mom in Wisconsin, I'm like, look, Take a close look at your local GOP. They are hostile to democracy. That's bad for you uh, because of just where you live, but it's also bad because people look to us as an example. Don't you want to be a strong example for the rest of the world? Aren't you proud of America when you fly that flag, right? Don't you want to be proud of what we represent? That's what I want to see more of from our politicians. All right, listener. Uh, Ravi had to go, but I'm going to do the ads. And for your listening pleasure, I'm going to attempt to do both parts as if Ravi is here. Uh, you know, Jason, uh, as you know, as we've talked about, I have been uh, trying to study Spanish more because I'm in Costa Rica. I'm doing a lot of surfing here. I don't know if you've seen. Uh, but, you know, even before that, I was using Babbel for my Italian. And then, you know, I come back in. Uh, thank you. Good point. Babbel's 15-minute lessons make it the perfect way to learn a new language on the go. Other language learning apps use AI for their lesson plans, but Babbel lessons were created by over 100 language experts. Their teaching method has been scientifically proven to be effective. With Babbel, you can choose from 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, and German. You can access podcasts, games, videos, stories, and even live classes. Plus, it comes with a 20-day money-back guarantee. Start your new language learning journey today with Babbel. Right now, when you purchase a three-month Babbel subscription, you'll get an additional three months for free. That's six months for the price of three. Just go to Babbel.com and use promo code MAJORITY54. That's B-A-B-B-E-L.com, code MAJORITY54, Babbel, language for life. All right, now for the next ad, I think it'd be fun. Grace, you come back in, you be Ravi, and I'll just be me. So, Jason, I was working out the other day. I'm really getting into tennis, as I've mentioned really pursuing tennis. I think it's going to be my next big, long life uh, life task and thing that will keep me young forever. So I've really started hitting the athletic greens, Jason. I start every day with an athletic greens and I even send you photos of it every morning because I want you to see that I am enjoying my athletic greens. <laughs> that was really good. I, uh, I really enjoy getting those photos. They, they help me remember. Uh, but the truth is I don't need the reminder because I, I take my athletic greens every single morning. With one delicious scoop of athletic greens, you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole foods, sourced superfoods, 
includes probiotics and adaptogens to help you start your day right. Uh, it costs you less than $3 a day. You're investing in your health and it's cheaper than your cold brew habit. It supports better sleep quality, recovery, and it supports mental clarity and alertness. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash majority. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash majority to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Well, speaking of our politicians, let's talk about the race for the Senate. Uh, so McConnell uh, has been pretty smart, I would say, politically. This is not moral, but pretty smart politically to not have an agenda. This is like a this is a playbook that is as old as politics. You know, Tony Blair in his memoir talked about the fact that he loved being in the opposition because he really didn't have to be for anything, and it made it really easy to be, you know, squirrely uh, and cause a lot of havoc. Uh, but governing, you have to be for something, and so we weren't expecting the Republicans in the midterms to really put out much of a platform, but. Somehow, Rick Scott didn't get the message and put out a platform uh, this past week. And there's a lot of notable stuff in here. What's notable also is there, there's no plan to fight inflation, to increase wages, to decrease inequality. Uh, but there is uh, a pledge to secure funding for the border uh, and to build a wall and to name the wall after Donald Trump. Uh, they want a 25% cut to the federal workforce. Uh, they think all Americans should pay taxes, which presumably includes people in poverty and the elderly, uh, which is interesting because they want everybody to, quote, have skin in the game in our tax code. And there's a whole bunch of identity politics stuff in there about men being men, women being women, yada, 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 because I know that's what people are worried about at their kitchen tables every day. So uh, what, what, what do we make of this? Like, is this an important moment? Can we hang this around their necks or is this just a a piece of paper that nobody's going to pay attention to. I do think that the part of this where they're trying to raise taxes is big. What I think the uh, the mistake I worry about Democrats making is like just getting excited and going, oh, the Republicans want to raise taxes. Like, no, you have to provide motive and you have to provide a narrative. Because what tends to happen is, is people in politics, they see polls that say people don't like it when taxes are raised. And then they go, oh, we got them now. We got them. They said they want to raise taxes. So all we got to do is go out and say they want to raise taxes. The problem with that is, is that people don't believe that Republicans want to raise taxes. So if you're going to make the argument that they want to raise taxes, you don't get to just pretend they want to raise taxes on you if you're talking to like an upper middle class voter. Like, no, you can't. You got to actually give them the details. You got to say they want people who, you know, earn this much to have pay more in taxes. They want you got to be specific and you got to tell them why you got to say because they want to pay fewer taxes. Um, so, you know, that's what it is to be a Democrat. You don't get to just seize on the easy thing. That's what the Republicans get to do, but we don't get to do that. So it's a, it's a more advanced form of messaging. I have a question. There's a lot in here that's mockable and he has multiple points that I think are just to your point, like objectively just targeting the poor and punish them for their poverty. I think that that is a really strong undercurrent. And so there are vague policy-esque things that we could talk about. But a lot of it is this kind of identity politics. He says, bullet point number four of his 11-part plan, is that he wants immigrants in this country who want to be Americans, not change America. And there's a lot of this like cultural politics, identity politics undercurrent. And I think that my question is, is that a bad strategy? 
I genuinely wonder if we are past a point in which people are clamoring for policies and perhaps people do just want an identity. Yeah, I think this gets to this conversation we've been having for a while now, which is this what's the matter with Kansas thesis that people are, quote unquote, voting against their interests. For, for that family, their interest may be in fighting some kind of culture that they don't like. Uh, and, and we could argue about whether that culture exists or not. I think different people have different opinions about the degree to which wokeism is a thing or a threat or a good thing or a bad thing or whatever. But the, But I think... There are people who are like, you know, progressives who have ideas for what America should be. And there are everyday voters who are not yet sold on some of those ideas. And I think the gap between those two things is where the Republicans love to be. And so we either need to convince people of the world that we want to live in, or we need to paint a picture of a different world. And I suspect different politicians are going to do different things there. Like I think a Max Rose is going to do something different than an AOC, for example. And that's the strange reality we live in right now. The, the, the problem comes for the Bidens of the world who, who have to keep the coalition together. And that I, 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 that's really tricky. And I sympathize with him on that. Well, I think the way to do that uh, is to actually take a similar focus to one of the opening paragraphs of the, of the Washington Post piece that you shared with us, Robbie, about this, which is where they're focused on what's not in this agenda, right? So what's not in there is any proposal to bring down inflation or, uh, or to increase wages or reduce income inequality or to prepare workers for the 21st century economy or to provide relief from tariffs or to increase school performance on basic subjects. Like, I do think that you can be speaking to both to both persuadable voters and to the base of the party, the base of the party may want to hear you defend, uh, you know, the routinely picked upon people. Uh, and I, I don't say that in like, I just mean like the Republican party picks on folks from, uh, the trans community for, you know, people of color, all that, obviously like rightfully the democratic base wants to hear the president defend those people. And then persuadable voters are looking to hear, what are you going to do for us? So I think if you are making the point, their agenda has absolutely no economic policies or education policies that are about increasing performance or increasing wages. What you are saying is, you, without having to say it, you are saying because they're focused on all these cultural battles, but you're not taking the bait by getting into the cultural battles necessarily in that argument. You're pointing out that they're not, they're not paying attention to this other thing. Well, here's an example. I also think that you, you, you can convince people, take any one part of these issues, why uh, being more inclusive actually is a better version of America. And I think people hate when we talk like this, but there is a version of the story. Like if I'm John Fetterman getting up in, in Pennsylvania and somebody asks me about inflation, I'll be like, you know, one of the ways we can actually deal with inflation is we can let more people into this country. Uh, because every like one of the reasons why prices are rising in this country is we don't have enough people to do the very difficult jobs, but there are tons of people clamoring to do them, whether it's my cousins in India or people in Mexico or whatever. There are people who would love to come here to do that. Why is healthcare so expensive? In part, because we have a doctor shortage in this country. So why don't we let more people in who are highly skilled, right? Uh, that actually helps you. Now, we can also talk about why culturally this is great and why like like being more inviting and open to people who are different than us is also good. But I would start with the easier win. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that to say, look, like from a very strictly transactional perspective, like actually letting more people in here and being nice to them and welcoming to them actually is in everybody's interest. When I think about the overall Republican strategy of trying to highlight 
cultural battles, which has been going on a long time, but now it's in like its latest iteration, obviously. I think about this thing that happens with my son where, you know, there are grown up words that we will try to use sometimes. Like we'll say, you know, the way you said that was harsh or you were short or you were all those things. And at the end of the day, what ends up happening is, is, is true will be like, do you mean I was mean? And I think that mean is a word that is inherently understood and it has meaning for people. So while the, while the point for the Republicans of all this is, yeah, the point is for them to look like they're in touch culturally with the people they're trying to get votes from. But really, if there's one word to describe it, and this has been true for generations, it's tough. They want to appear tough. They want to appear tough on this, tough on that, whatever. And then when you criticize them for the fact that their economic policies leave a lot of people out, they get away with it because it's like, yeah, well, we're tough. And this, you know, you got to be tough to get by. And I think people see us as a little bit soft, right? They see us because we are interested in inclusion and we're interested in being kinder to people who maybe they don't want to be as kind to. So at the end of the day, if politics is going to be so tribal and it's going to be about, which clearly is, about people picking which of these identities they're going to adopt as their own, maybe we should just spend a lot more time saying that these policies that Republicans are pushing or that the Republican Party in general is just mean. Because I don't think people want to see themselves as mean. I also think we could be less slippery about things at times. As somebody who spent a lot of time watching politicians on this, is that we're not honest about the trade-offs, right? I saw this with the defund debate. I see it with immigration. You know, as somebody who's a, a child of an immigrant, it's, it's not like it's just easy. Like my grandfather wouldn't talk to my, my mom for years because she married an Indian guy, right? Like this idea of assimilation is not easy, right? It wasn't easy being an Indian kid in a white working class neighborhood. Uh, but we all learned. And, and, and I was one kid. If there were 50 of us, it would be even harder in some ways. And, and there, would be, there would be a group dynamic at play. I still believe in it. But I also wouldn't sell it to people like, hey, this is just going to be like a slam dunk. We're going to come into your community and your community is automatically going to be recognizable in all the ways you want it to be. It's going to be different. Right. And I think if you live in a place that that uh, that has a lot of immigration, it's just it's going to change. And I think we should be like honest with people about that and sell them on it. But be honest about like it, 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 there are many things that are gonna be good about it, but there are also going to be some challenging things about it. And I'm going to treat you like an adult and talk to you about that, you know. Um, I don't see that enough. And then I, when the bill comes due for our policies, people resent us. Two things that that made me think of. First, someone I, I, I once worked with once said, everyone is opposed to change unless you make them part of the change. But I think particularly in democratic politics, because we're always pushing for change or so frequently pushing for change, should just be more of our mantra. And the second part is that to me, there's also to have forward vision to to acknowledge trade-offs to your point also requires a lot of courage. And that to me is like, as opposed to just assigning Republicans like they're mean, that to your toughness, I have courage is like also a, a nice counterweight. Courage also usually requires like doing something that's hard, but ultimately for the better. And I think that that's something that we could own more powerfully. Yeah, well, maybe, you know, it's as simple as like, yeah, it's easy to be mean. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. it's harder to be kind. And yeah. we're going to choose to be kind. You know, but to your point, you raised about like including people in the change. I think it's a great point. And it means 
the change is not oh this is and this is where people get upset because they characterize this as a moderate position it's not it's a realistic position it's not saying hey we're not going to have as much change it's saying if we're going to involve people in the change it may not be as much change as we want but that may be the only way we get the change right it's like if you're if you're going to make the change something that is also other people's idea you're probably not going to get all the change you want at first so Reed Epstein in the New York Times had an illuminating article about the great state of Wisconsin. Their GOP appears to be tearing itself apart over the question, not just of whether the 2020 election was stolen, because it seems like by and large, they're, they're largely in agreement on that. But there are now members of the GOP in Wisconsin who want to decertify the 2020 uh, results. I don't think there's any powers that allow them to do this, but this gets to this question we've been talking about. Do we make this an issue? This is a threat to our democracy, not this particular act because it might not be legal, but the fact that there are so many people who are legitimate within one political party who seem to believe this kind of crazy stuff. Grace is our resident Wisconsin expert. So I do love Wisconsin. And what has been so much fun about this story to me is that the assembly speaker, Robin Voss, is like, not a casual conservative. This is not a middle of the road guy. And he is out saying that this is lunacy and that it must stop. And it's now thrown to the governor's race up in turmoil, which I think is great for Tony Evers, the current Democratic governor who is going to face a really tough reelection. It has the the current frontrunner for the Republicans, Rebecca Cleefish, now is backtracking on whether or not she believes Biden won, even though she did already state as much in September. And I will say that from what I have seen and researched is that Wisconsin is the harbinger of all things to come. They had far right Trumpian Republicans long before Trump was a thing. And so I would say that this kind of theater of the absurd that we're currently witnessing, I think most concretely in Wisconsin, I think is going to continue to spread and be a huge issue. And what I hope is that it's actually ultimately a good thing in the grand scheme of things and that it does end up splintering the Republican Party, at least in Wisconsin, and if not more broadly across the country. Where I am concerned is if this anti-democracy push, because right now it still really exists around Trump and, you know, decertifying that election and reinstating him. And it is still, you know, a cult of personality. But will this same fringe faction take that on as their own mantle by themselves to carry forward for one of their future candidates. That's where I'm unclear. And that's where I'm apprehensive. Yeah, I don't know. This is scary shit, man. I I, I can't build on what, what Grace said other than to say, like, it's one of those things where when you're watching your enemies fight, you just hope that, like, they get really bloody at the end and you stay the heck out of it for a minute, I guess. Yeah. Well, it's almost like a, the problem is, we wanted to we want this to hurt them enough so that we can win. But if it doesn't hurt them enough for us to win, then a more virulent, insane version of them takes power and it's a greater threat. So it's kind of a catch twenty two, you know, and, and I think it all depends on on our ability to win this election. You know, and it's and we've met Ben. Like what's crazy is this is their version of the GOP and we've met Ben. He's like a competent, sensible person. The world, this is the world we live in is that we still are like we still probably are like at a disadvantage heading into this election. It's crazy. People should go back and listen to Ravi's referencing Ben Wickler was on the show a few weeks ago, chairman of the Democratic Party in Wisconsin. 
Ben's wonderful. And I think something that he, I believe he mentioned, and he's definitely told me before, is that four of the last six presidential elections in Wisconsin were decided by less than a percentage point. So races there are tight, always have been, and probably will be for the foreseeable future. So when I say that, like, they are the harbinger of things to come, it's because all of the tense tension and anxiety that happens in our country just gets all bottled up in Wisconsin. And I do agree with you, Ravi, that it's very high stakes because I think we all felt really similarly in the 2016 election, thinking like, well, if the Republicans from this huge field end up going with Trump, that'll be easier for the Democrats to defeat because he's obviously so out on his own. And that was obviously not the case. But I think that something we can always come back to is that this is taking up a lot of airspace. This is taking up a lot of Wisconsin's time. And that state, much like many other states in the country, are facing a lot of really practical problems that they need to address. And none of those are getting the time and space they deserve because the governing party in the legislature is self-consuming. So to our Wisconsin friends, I would just keep hammering home that this is not helping you at all. Can I throw out like an alternative theory to the, like Ravi, what you were saying about, you know, you got one side that's really, really crazy and then one side that's less crazy. So it's, a you know, so on the one hand, you want the really, really crazy side to win because then maybe we have a better chance to win. But on the other hand, what if they win and they take power? I actually would put a, a different idea on the table, which is at the end of the day, the result's going to be the same. If the, if the Republicans win, they're going to go after democracy. Like these more mainstream Republicans, from what I can tell, from what I've read about this, they're not like, oh, no, no, democracy is very important. Yeah. And therefore, we, we could never overturn an election. They're just like, uh, I, I don't actually think there's evidence for that. But like, I've seen it a million times. They can not believe in any of the conspiracy theories and still make it freaking impossible to vote for certain people who they think are not going to vote for them. So at the end of the day, I actually think the answer for us is probably a little less rubbernecking about the Republican car crash, because that's what Democrats like. We love to do that. Like we love to go by a really, really bad Republican car accident and think that maybe it makes us less likely to be in a car accident. Uh, but the truth is, we should just keep our eyes straight ahead and and keep trying to drive home our arguments about why we're right and they're wrong, because we're probably going to get the same result from either side. Yeah. You know, it, you know, something you talked about, Grace, is this lieutenant governor, Rebecca Cleefish, was, that is the establishment candidate who is now, mm-hmm. she's now saying that the, she won't admit that Biden won. That is what an establishment Republican candidate looks like right now. And so that's just where we are. And I think we'll continue to monitor this. And we, we obviously care a lot about the great state of Wisconsin. And there's so much that can happen between now and the election. And one of the things I've continued to say that is in our favor is the Republican primaries. Like that is in our favor. I am infinitely more confident in our primaries than theirs. And you already see it. Like how much drama are you reading about about Democratic primaries? Not a lot, right? You're, you're reading about a ton of drama in the Republican primaries. We have an opportunity and that's all you can ask for. Now we have to capitalize on it. All right, finally, let's do our road to the midterm segment. It's funny because I just was like, we should stop rubbernecking Republican car accidents. But, you know, like, I'll stop that next week. Uh, This week, we're going to do road to the midterms where we talk about what's going on in Ohio. Yeah, and I think I I do, in your defense, Jason, we can do this in a non-rubbernecking way. I I will, there's, 
it's hard not to poke fun at some of these people, but I do think this is important because of the dynamic is, is, is in large part, like the dynamic in the GOP primary tells us who we're going to be dealing with and what their positions are and also what kind of fissures may exist within the Republican Party that we can exploit. Now, a few things are going on in the Ohio GOP Senate race. One is J.D. Vance, you know, the noted author of Hillbilly Elegy, venture capitalist J.D. Vance, uh, is in trouble. He's slipping in the polls. One thing that's driving this is that he used to be critical of Trump and now is basically groveling at Trump's feet. And he's doing things like endorsing Marjorie Taylor Greene and pretending to be like part of the fringe right to win this primary. And the Club for Growth, I believe, has been running ads uh, against Vance, basically pointing out his statements criticizing Trump in the past. So his past is coming back to haunt him. Now, he does have a decent sized war chest from Peter Thiel the uh, investor in Facebook, among other things, who put $10 million into support Vance and presumably could put much more. Teal notably also stepped down from the meta board or announced that he's stepping down from the meta board, which is the Facebook board, to focus more on politics. But Vance is struggling in part because he is not authentically Trumpian. And that, that seems to be costing him so far. I feel like the lesson here is a lesson for anybody in politics, which is let's look at the trajectory of the Vance campaign. He got in and he got in with a, a, a good bit of fanfare because he got in as somebody who's not a politician. Like here's a guy who, you know, he's been a, a, a finance person. He's been an author of a very popular book, which was turned into a movie. And it's like, okay, this guy's not a politician. And that was working for him. And then what did he do? He did what politicians do. He figured out where the voters were and he ran there as quickly as possible. And people were like, hmm, maybe you're a politician and you seem like you're kind of full of shit. I, so I feel like the lesson here is a simple one, which is like, don't do that. Now, Mandel, I think is very similar, but Mandel has the advantage of having run to this spot a really, really long time ago. Like, so <laughs> if, if so, if this is I'm really long, you know, in, in our in relative terms, like in modern politics. So like if this is a game of musical chairs and you got to be in the crazy spot, uh, or maybe you don't have to be in the crazy spot. You just have to be in a spot that seems authentic, but you decide that the crazy spot is the best authentic place to be. Well, Mandel was already sitting there. He, was not, he wasn't born in that spot. He didn't grow up in that spot, but he was sitting in that spot when the music stopped. And now Vance is like, well, no, 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 this spot over here is crazy. And they're like, no, 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 we know we saw you standing when the music stopped. <laughs> so the, the, the point is like, just don't be full of shit. Like if you believe things that your base doesn't believe, like, yeah, that might be a problem for you. You might lose because of that. But if you pretend that you believe those things and they don't believe you, then you're definitely going to lose. So you may as well try the thing that might work. Listeners can't see our video, but Grace and I, I think both looked at each other and we're like, I don't think he's going to land that metaphor, but you did bravo for <laughs> you that. You totally did. Yeah, it was. <laughs> I, I had my doubts for a minute. I was sweating just thinking about it, but amazing. I think something else that's interesting about this race is that now, because of some recent comments that J.D. has made about what we talked about earlier on the show, Russia and its invasion of Ukraine, that there's another woman in the race, Jane Timken, who is the former head of the Republican Party in Ohio. And she is now hitting J.D. for those comments and kind of coming at him a little bit more from the center right. So he's really getting, I feel like, squeezed in his inability to be genuine and be authentic. But he's also not the only Republican who's come to the defense of Vladimir Putin in the last couple of weeks, which is a really interesting 
kind of alignment of the Marjorie Taylor Greene, QAnon, Trumpist, now Putinist conglomerate, I would say. And Jane at least seems to be showing that there could be some interest and movement further to the center for the Republicans who kind of remember, you know, perhaps the the Reagan era anti-USSR fervor that defined them for so long. So that to me is where this Ohio race has become more interesting and definitely one to watch. I think we should never refer to being anti-Russia as like a thing that used to be Republican. I think we should be like, that's what all Americans used to be. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, I'm not yeah. criticizing you, Grace. I'm just saying because like, we, I do it too. And I realize like, Maybe we should just be like, you know, we all used to think they were the bad guys. For sure. And like every Hollywood movie of the era is, you know, there's a Russian supervillain. But when the figurehead of the U.S. at that time is the like ghost of Christmas past that the Republican Party held on to for so long, it begs repeating, I feel. Yeah, no, you're right. But I'm just saying like we should just screen Rocky Four over and over and over again and be like, look, this is like... It wasn't just one party that went to see this movie, if you can believe it. Like, everybody (laughs) thought that this made sense. This is where I think, to connect to our last week episode, this is where humor is going to have to come in. Whoever wins that primary on the Democratic side, they're going to get a Republican who is mockable. And I do think that humor has a place in our politics. I think making fun of a venture capitalist who spent less time in Ohio than I've spent in Tennessee over the past decade uh, is probably vulnerable like the fact that this guy, you know, has this glistening prose uh, when he's trying to be nuanced, but sounds like a complete idiot when he's trying to triangulate for the electorate. That that's just there's there's room there for for comedy. And uh, I think when you when you make fun of some of these people, you could see them unravel a bit because they're not Trump. Like Trump is like a superhuman in his lack of shame. Like, I don't think a lot of these people are built the same way that he is, you know, and even Trump couldn't stand being mocked in part like the, the White House Correspondents Dinner apparently was, you know, unfortunately, Seth Meyers for all did of us, this to all of us. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately for all of us, like got into his psyche a little bit. But I, I would love to see a little bit more of this because I do think that people respond to humor. I will say that I feel that shamelessness has become a prerequisite for being a Republican candidate right now. And I think a good antidote to that on the Democratic side is humor. And because that is a way in which to access and acknowledge the shamelessness without stooping to the same low. All right. Now, uh, I always make the pitch for voicemails, but like Grace is a producer and knows what kind of voicemail she wants us to have. So, Grace, what is your pitch for the voicemail? Yeah, I really enjoy hearing from all of you. So please continue to leave us voicemails. I particularly love any questions that you have for Jason Ravi that you want them to mull over or respond to. So, you know, make their jobs a little harder. So send me the questions that you think are going to really push Jason and Ravi. And you can find us at 508-687-2589. That's 508-687-2589. I look forward to hearing from you. Well done. I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is on Instagram making you feel bad about your life. Shame on Cousin Sam. <laughs> if you're listening, Sam, stick stick with me here. I'll, I'll give you the content you need. Uh, he's also on Twitter where he's been opining a lot more. And it's at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. Grace is at GraceLynch08 on Twitter. The show is at Majority54 on Twitter. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. 
Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch, Edie Allard, and Adesua Agbenayal. Theme music provided by Kemet Coleman. And special thanks to Diana Kander. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.